The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest uh, this hour is uh, a writer and the creator of the viral social media movement, hashtag why I stayed. She has a master's degree in social justice from Loyola University, where she wrote her thesis on institutional responses to single women experiencing intimate partner violence. She has a uh, new book, and we're going to talk about that um, a little bit. The, uh, the book is called Surviving. Why We Stay and How We Leave Abusive Relationships by Beverly Gooden. And she joins me by phone. Good morning, Beverly. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me this morning. Um, Beverly, was it from some personal experience that led Mm -hmm. you into studying and ultimately writing about these things? It was. So I met my ex-husband when we were in college. So we were pretty young, early 20s. And, you know, when I think back on that meeting, I really thought he was the perfect guy. (laughs) You know, like you think all your youth about the love of your life and what they're going to be like and what it's going to feel like. And when I met him, I knew that that was what I had been searching for. Um, and it was good, you know, it was good for a long time. We dated and fell in love and families loved each other. And it was just kind of like the perfect situation. And then one day he threw me a birthday party. And after the birthday party, he said that he felt like I wasn't grateful for his effort and that he thought I had been flirting with someone at the party. And so for the very first time, he pushed me against the wall and he started to strangle me and it was out of nowhere you know I had never he had never done that I had never experienced that in any relationship and so when he finally let me go I was really confused I didn't think to run you know I didn't think get out of here because that was not what I knew of him and so what I thought was this was an abnormal behavior from him I did something to provoke it I you know, it, it was my fault. Um, well, or at the very least, weird. something else is going on here. Yeah. At the very least, something else is going on. I didn't think that, that he was an abusive person, you know, because there was no evidence of that. In the, in the six or seven months that we had been dating, 
I've never seen anything but gentleness and sweetness. And so when he did that, I didn't leave him. I stayed with him. And ultimately, I got married to him. And, you know, the violence continued. It wasn't, I tell people all the time, it wasn't everyday violence. And I think that's the tricky thing about relationship abuse is that a lot of people think that in order for it to be considered abuse, it has to happen every day, you know, or every other day. It just has to be a constant abusive environment. But it wasn't. You know, it was it was peaceful a lot of the times, and then it was violent some other times. And so I didn't even realize I was in an abusive relationship for years. You know, I didn't consider it that. I considered it marital problems or an issue that we had to work out together. And it took a situation where he um, woke me up by pushing me out of the bed and then chasing me through the house and then punching me and choking me and strangling me, rather, for me to figure out, one, that this is domestic violence, but two, that he could kill me. And that's when I decided that I needed to leave the the marriage. Did you experience what a lot of women do, um, Beverly, of leaving and then going back? I wanted to, but I didn't. And, I, and I'm and i glad you asked that question because I don't think that question is asked enough. You know, when you leave an abusive relationship, particularly if it's one where you've merged your life together as in a marriage, you're leaving your home and you're leaving your, your partner and you're leaving your support. You know, you're leaving everything that you knew for years. And so when I left, I went to a domestic violence shelter for a little while and then I went to live in a boarding house where I rented out a room until I could get on my feet and that and the whole entire time in the shelter and a boarding house where it was cold and it was a lot of college students and it was uncomfortable I wanted to go home I wanted to go back to him I thought I kept telling myself well it was bad and I was harmed and there were bruises but I can take it it'll be fine you know my life was more comfortable there and I missed him right like I missed (laughs) I missed the person that I wanted to be with and so I didn't go back I wanted to go back would would you go so far as to say there was more good than bad yes there was more good than bad um I would say it was 30% bad 70% good and that's the trick of domestic violence is that People who are abusive, which, by the way, I don't think most people are abusive. I think abusers are um, are not most of us. Most of us are fine. But abusers know how to abuse you just enough to have you think that it's an anomaly, you know. And so it's like, you know, if we have peace for 30 days and then all of a sudden there's violence and then we have peace for another 30 days, well, the math is in their favor. So maybe it is an anomaly, but it's not. It's it's a it's a it's a constant. It's a method. Um, it's a trick. Well, and and like with corporal punishment with children, for example, um, parents hope and and always hoped that um, an occasional spanking would would hang there mm-hmm. as a scepter against um mm-hmm. you know bad behavior right. that there was some some more lasting result and and I wonder if abusers don't think that same thing 
You know, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there's a, you know, I write in my book there are a lot of reasons why um, scholars have found that abusers abuse um, or the reasons behind that. A lot of it has to do with their own trauma from childhood or, you know, growing up in maybe a violent home or, you know, perpetuating something that they've seen. That's one of the reasons that experts talk about. Um, another thing is just that they've learned violence from the, their position in life. So maybe they came from a violent home or a violent neighborhood or they've witnessed violence all through their life and violence is their normal. So it doesn't even seem like something that's abnormal. Violence is the world that they grew up in and so that is what relationships are. And in, and sometimes I think that maybe my ex-husband thought that. I know, you know, I always say his story is not my story to tell, but he experienced um, a lot of difficult things in his past, a lot of traumas. And I sometimes think that maybe violence in the home was his normal. And so when I pushed back against it, when I said, no, this is not how we should live at any time, whether occasional or um, frequent, he kind of was thrown off by that. You know, he was just like, this is fine. This is this is relationships. This is marriage. Um, we stick together. And so I said all that to say that whether it's occasional or not, violence, especially in partnerships, especially in relationships, shouldn't exist. How did he react when you left? It's interesting because I hear a lot from survivors that, you know, when they leave, they their abuser kind of um, reacts negatively. They come after them or there's violence. In fact, the two weeks following an abusive relationship are the most violent times because when an abuser loses control, most of the time they want to get that control back. In my case, he didn't. And I, and I think it's because once he lost control of the relationship, and by that I mean once I left, anything else to do with me because he wanted someone who would obey. You know, he wanted someone who would um, stick through it and, and who he could persuade or control. And when I wasn't there anymore for him to do that, he was no longer interested. And so I didn't experience any violence once he left. Everything I experienced once I left was um, surviving and reinventing and rebuilding, which to me was the hardest part of the whole journey. And after you left and, and um, started the process of getting a divorce, and I, I assume you filed mm -hmm. for a divorce. I did. Right. right. <laughs> and then how, how was that process? How was getting through mm -hmm. the divorce process and the contacts you had to have? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I live in Texas, and um, the county that I lived in in Texas was very pro se. And so you could file, fill out all the divorce papers by yourself and file them by yourself if you had the money. I didn't have the money. <laughs> so I had to wait a really long time to file for divorce. So we were legally married well after I left him. I didn't get the money together to file for divorce almost um, a year later. So it was well into this, this summer, I believe, when I was able to file for divorce. But during that time, um, I had to get him to sign papers. And so some of the papers I served him through a process server so we didn't have to have contact. Ultimately, he didn't show up to the divorce proceedings, either of them. 
And so the judge granted me the divorce um, in lieu of him being there. So I didn't have to have any contact with him in regards to the divorce process, which I consider a real blessing. <laughs> but I didn't have to face him and, you know, him. We didn't have children together or own property together. And it's part of the reason why I study single women who experience divorce because we don't have children to fight over custody with. We don't have uh, assets to divide. We just have to survive, you know, on our own. But I didn't have to engage him in any way when it came to getting through the divorce, which I, I was really lucky to not have that experience because a lot of survivors have those issues of custody. You know, and just think about if you are um, taken from your home or you leave your home and you take your children with you, there's so many variables, right? You have to figure out a way to get the divorce filed. Um, you have to work out custody issues if you win custody. And you may not win custody because you might be homeless because you've left your home. You know, there are rules and regulations in regards to filing for divorces in, the cer in a certain county and state. So, if you run away and you leave your county, you may have to establish residency in a different county, which can be a whole nother six months. And so this is part of the reason why I always think it's it's interesting when people say, just get up and run, just get up and go. Why would you stay? You don't have to stay. Well, you have no idea how many things you have to think about once you leave. Yeah. Now, you two didn't have children. No, no children. So there was no custody there. What mm -hmm. was it about about your experience that made you want to do the work you're doing? That's a really good question. Um, Tom, to be honest, I didn't want to do. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want to do the work. <laughs> But I'm doing, no one's ever asked me that question. I didn't want to, uh, I, I can just say that when I left the marriage, it was 2010. Um, by the time I got divorced, it was well into 2011. And then I was silent on everything. I didn't talk about it. I wasn't an activist or an advocate. I would very quietly, sometimes under a different name, donate to domestic violence agencies or do like the 5Ks for domestic violence, things like that. I never talked about it. I never revealed to my new friends that I made that I had survived domestic violence. I just didn't want to talk about it. And the reason that I started to talk about it was in 2014, um, I don't know if you or your audience will remember this, but there was a video of a football player named Ray Rice um, and a video came out uh, of him punching his fiance in an elevator and then dragging her out of that elevator. And so that video was released on social media. And I was on social media that day. And I remember when the video was released, it was 2014. And at first, the conversation on Be social Beverly, I hate to interrupt, but I have a break oh. coming up, and I, oh, yeah, yeah. I thought maybe what we do is just put a comma here, and if you could stick around for a yeah. few minutes, we can talk some more. For sure. Thank you, Tom. My guest is Beverly Gooden. She is a writer and creator of the viral social media movement, hashtag why I stayed. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If uh, you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner.
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yellow. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nussel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the uh, writer of a uh, new book. It is called uh, Surviving, Why We Stay and How We Leave Abusive Relationships by Beverly Gooden, who joins me by phone. Beverly, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me, Phil. Just before the break, I had asked you what caused you to want to share what had happened Mm -hmm. with you and to work with people who had... uh, gotten involved uh, or been involved in domestic violence and you said you really didn't want to at first (laughs) (laughs) it's true yeah I mean you know it's so interesting how you hear a lot of people like well I always wanted to (laughs) I always wanted to be involved in whatever I'm involved in I never I never wanted to and so when the video of Ray Rice was released um, of him punching his fiance I was on social media that day And at first, the conversation around it was shock, you know, because you don't, unless it's a movie, you don't see most of the time real life um, relationship violence. It's just not something that you see most of the time on television. And so people saw it and they were shocked and, you know, there was a horror there. But within minutes, and I do mean minutes, the conversation changed to why would she stay with him? Or people were saying things like, I would never let anyone abuse me. I would never let anyone hit me. The reason they were saying that is because pretty soon the information came out that she had married um, Ray Rice, his wife, since that incident. And so that added another element of, you know, what the heck is going on here? And so in that moment, I, I think back to that moment all the time, and I really can still feel that shame you know, um, not from abuse per se, because there's nothing to be ashamed of there. I felt the shame that society puts on you for being someone who stays with a violent person, because I made that choice too. I married my ex after he had hit me several times, you know, and so I started a hashtag why stayed and it went viral on social media and, um, kind of by virtue of it going viral, I started to speak out more about it because, you know, before I wasn't talking about it at all. And um, I just kept doing it. You know, I found that the issue of domestic violence is something that happens in the shadows. You know, for the longest time, it's been considered a private issue or family issue. If you know your neighbors are um, there's abuse in their home. It's like, well, that's not our business. And, you know, that we can't, you know, that's not, that's between them, you know. And so for something that exists in the shadows for so long, when it finally comes to light or when there are people who are speaking very publicly about it, more people begin to come out of those shadows and they begin to do things like ask for help or try to create a safety plan to get out of the relationship, or they just feel some sense of community, and they don't feel that shame that I felt, you know, when when the Ray Rice video came out. And so I just kept doing it. I kept speaking about it. I kept um, writing about it, um, and it just stuck. You know, at this point, I've it's been 10 years, 10 or 11 years since I left my ex-husband. And so the pain is not as acute still there you know I don't think that ever goes away but I can talk about it a lot more now 
without the nightmares popping up or without the trauma coming to the surface or without the tears that are very, that were very present in the beginning. So I feel a sense of responsibility to other survivors who may not be able to talk about what they're going through right now. I feel that, that responsibility to them. And so that's how I got into this work, and that's why I continue in this work. Did you find in the process of standing up for other women that you ultimately were standing up for your for yourself in a way that you hadn't yet very much so that's such an excellent statement i you know i back then i didn't feel like i was allowed to stand up for myself you know i very i grew up in a in a um, religious christian household and so marriages didn't you know I, I i hadn't seen marriages that didn't work out i hadn't seen marriages that didn't go the the mile you know my parents i love them so much they've been married 45 years in september you know so i've I've seen marriages that stick and so i assumed that there was no speaking up you just made it work you know and so to your point now that i talk about it i i know what it's like to be in a relationship that is violent and you don't feel like you can talk so I do feel now that I'm talking about it, and I know it's true, um, there's evidence that it's true. You know, I I feel like I'm in a place where I can not only represent others, but I can finally speak for myself. When, when you've, have you found yourself in a, in a, situation of of counseling other women that mm-hmm. are going through domestic abuse is that a role no. you play no no i don't feel like i'm qualified <laughs> i'm not qual- I'm, not, I'm more of a researcher so i feel like i'm not really qualified to do counseling or or that sort of thing i find myself when i'm at speaking events particularly tom with college students and teenagers that i'm often giving advice about the signs of abuse, like the red flags that you can look for that may tip you off that your relationship could become violent or is violent. Um, things like, you know, targeted insults when your partner is saying something like, um, you look so ugly all the time, or why would you wear that? Or, you know, speaking about your weight or, you know, just kind of verbally or emotionally abusive things. Um, the physical violence tends to be pretty obvious. So when it comes to teenagers and college students and young adults, it's more about the other things that may be unhealthy that may not rise to the occasion of abuse. And Tom, one thing that I think is really important to to note is that um, 50%, 50% of people, um, college students, report experiencing violence while in college. So this is not an adult issue, right? I, t- I think we tend to think of domestic violence as an issue between two married people or two adults. But teenagers are experiencing it as they explore relationships for the very first time. College students are leaving home. Their parents are at home and they're off at college. They're meeting, you know, their partners and they're discovering love and and relationships and they're experiencing violence and they don't tell their parents and they don't tell anyone. And so I have a really... Um, blessed and unique opportunity to have those conversations with young people 
the conversations they may not want to have with their parents or, or the adults in their lives or they're just trying to figure out if this is healthy or unhealthy. And I feel like those are the moments where it's not counseling, but it's definitely tips and advice so that maybe they do feel more comfortable talking about this with mom or dad or grandma and grandpa or the counselor at school or the nurse at school. And so when it comes to counseling, I don't position myself as someone who counsels, but I do definitely uh, have a lot of advice for people who are in the relationships or think they might be in that relationship. When you were researching this, um, Beverly, did you discover any significant differences in the way that uh, institutions respond to domestic violence along racial lines? That's a really good question. I think when it comes to institutions, for instance, such as agency, domestic violence agencies, companies like that, they, you know, are kind of prohibited by federal law, you know, against discrimination. So they try their best to welcome all people from all walks of life. But when we're talking about, like, banks or other institutions, other organizations, there is discrimination, and um, that is just solely based on the fact that uh, black people, which I am, I'm a black person, black people tend to be devalued in our society. And it just kind of is one of those things that exists. We all know it exists. And so think of being a black person on your own, without money, without, you know, a support system, going into, you know, let's, let's just use the bank as an example, a banking institution and looking for an account. You don't have any money to contribute to it. And also you look different. Um, there's discrimination there. It's well documented throughout throughout history. And so I think the hurdle for people of color or for LGBTQ plus people when accessing services through these institutions is discrimination. And the way that we can overcome that is through, one, acknowledging it and recognizing it, recognizing the bias, acknowledging that there is racism that exists. We see it all the time. We've seen it most recently in Buffalo, you know, where someone who was explicitly a white supremacist said it, you know, we don't have to assume he called himself that, went and to a black community and murdered black people. You know, so we know that this is something that exists. We don't like to talk about it. We know that it exists. But we don't kind of transfer that knowledge into other areas of life, such as surviving domestic violence or the issue of domestic violence. Black women experience inordinate amounts of domestic violence. Um, they are killed at several times more rates um, of domestic violence, yet there are not a lot of targeted um, organizations that specialize in helping black women. So the hurdles are there. I think that it's not impossible to overcome. It takes um, acknowledging it, working against it, and um, funding solutions that target those communities. Because black women obviously aren't the only community that experience high rates of domestic violence. Immigrants do. Disabled communities do. You know, a lot of times people with disabilities experience violence from a caregiver or a child or a parent, and they cannot escape that abuse just because they physically can't get away. You know, so there are so many communities that are at a higher risk, and they face those those hurdles, and we just have to do something about it. I don't have all the answers, but I know that the research is just plainly there for anyone, anyone to see, anyone to find. 
Were did you do any writing before writing this book? Yes, yeah. So I um, actually have my bachelor's degree is in journalism, and so I've always been a writer in some way. I used to write a lot of fiction because that's the direction I wanted to go in, but I started to write nonfiction long ago. I wrote um, a self-published book way back, and I think it was 2005. That was more along the lines of like uh, religious, you know, it was a religious text. I don't write that way anymore. Um, not that I'm not religious. I'm still a believer. However, I, I write more about social issues now because I think, you know, it's important to contextualize everything that's going on present day in the world today, you know, not necessarily um, in our hearts, you know, or in our minds, or our thoughts and our prayers, but what has actually happened and how can we impact that now. So I've been writing for a long time. This is the first time I've written about my story. I very intentionally did not write a lot <laughs> about my story, like I said before, I didn't really want to talk about it. So this is the first time I've gone into detail about my story in regards to domestic violence. All my other writing has been research papers and, you know, journalism and um, religious writing, but never this type of writing. So I'm nervous about it, but <laughs> I'm glad that, that I was able to do it. How did you um, collect the information um, that, that ultimately you would share in this book? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are so many um, books about domestic violence that I found it really easy and beneficial to target in on what I wanted to discuss in this book. For instance, I wanted to talk about trauma. I wanted to talk about what trauma does to the body and how it impacts specifically um, people who experience domestic violence. And so there's this great book called Trauma. And I'm, I'm, I'm always going to forget the author names because I'm so bad with names. <laughs> but there's a book called Trauma and Recovery that has a wealth of information. The Body Keeps the Score is a book that's kind of like ever-present on all the bestseller lists now. <laughs> it's by Besser um, Kolk, and it's called The Body Keeps the Score. It is, it is a great book about how trauma literally changes your brain and um, impacts your nervous system. I found that to be fascinating. There are other books like Why Does He Do That um, by Lundy Van Croft. And it's, it's been around for 20, 30 years, but it's really an exploration into why people who are abusive even do that in the first place. I love that book because it doesn't um, demonize abusers. And I try not to do that in my book. I don't position it as all people who are abused are terrible, evil people who should go to jail and never be seen again and be you know removed from communities. I don't approach it that way. And so I wanted to find the research that's, that went into detail about how people are people. They make bad decisions. They cause harm. And here's why. So that was a good book to read. I, when I was in graduate school, my program director um, kind of helped me think through my own experience of domestic violence and how to write about that. She wrote a great book. She's passed away now, but she wrote a great book called um, A Theoethic of Justice. She was a Catholic nun, which is just a really <laughs> interesting, you know, it's just a really interesting, she has a really, and she had a really interesting perspective on everything. Her name was Mary, um, but her book is called When Love is Not Enough, A Theoethic of Justice. And so, um, and then I, I read a lot of research journals about, you know, um, immigrant 
communities experiencing domestic violence, uh, minority communities experiencing domestic violence. And so I just really did delve into a lot of research journals, articles, and books that I knew had the information that I wanted to get to the heart of. There are also some fun books in there that I read. Um, there's a book um, by an activist named Adrian Marie Brown, and it's called Pleasure Justice. And so, you know, it sounds weird, but it's really all about how do we um, center pleasure in our lives while also making sure that we don't cause harm in the world while we're seeking that pleasure. And I love that framing. You know, I love that we can be happy and that we can make others happy while not harming others. So the book is is so much about living after abuse. The first half is about the abuse. I think that has to be there. You know, it's about the abuse. It's about escaping the abuse. The second half of the abuse is the second half of the book rather is about living again and how hard it is to start over. Um, how hard it is to date again. <laughs> Dating sucks. It's terrible. <laughs> you know how hard it is. How hard it is to do that in your thirties. You know, um, and it's just it's it's it. The second half of the book was fun to write because I feel like more of me is in there. The first half is all about like the research and the journals and the books and all of that and you know the PhDs who write about it. The second half is just about me trying to tell you how to get through it if you want to, and how I got through it, and where I am now, and how it's great now. Did you conduct any interviews with uh, uh, people who had experienced uh, similar things to what you had experienced? Mm -hmm. For the book, I didn't. For the book, it was all written research. Um, I just did a lot of reading and incorporated the nets and cited everything. So every person I cited is in the book. I didn't do a lot of interviews because... I find that interviews, interviewing is not the best style for me because it brings up a lot of pain. You know, I'm one of those people who's kind of, and I'm not a super impact, but I'm I'm on that scale. You know, so when I'm having conversations, particularly with young people who've experienced relationship abuse, I can derail. <laughs> and then it becomes me trying to figure out how to help, you know, as opposed to trying to get this book done. So I kept my research to um, things that are documented, things that are already out there in, in the journals, and um, that's how I built the case for surviving. Well, what's next for you, Beverly? You know, I don't know. I <laughs> right now I'm just kind of I'm just kind of resting because you know the the book writing journey is a years long thing. So this actually started in 2019. It's 2022. So I feel like it's been kind of nonstop editing and writing for years. But I also work full time. Um, so it's just kind of like a balance of like book responsibilities and actually trying to keep my day job so I can <laughs> you know pay for gas, which is five dollars apparently. Um, yeah. So I'm. So I'm just doing that, you know, and I, I'm one of those people that's kind of like a, I'm free-spirited and just kind of a wanderlust, and so I'm, I'm, I'm someone who believes what will come next will come to me, and um, so I just kind of put, put myself in the, in the position to receive whatever goodness that is, and so I don't know for certain what's coming next, but I want to work on a bill um, that someone, hopefully, in Congress will sponsor that will provide shelter for everyone. And what I mean, when I say everyone, I mean literally everyone. Women, men, 
genderqueer people, anyone who's experiencing domestic violence, because I think it's so important to remember that one in four women experience it. One in six men experience domestic violence. We don't have a lot of data on non-binary people or genderqueer people, but we know that they do. And so I always think about how it is statistically impossible for all of us not to know someone who has or is experiencing domestic violence. And so where do we go? What do we do with that? When they're escaping, when they're leaving, what happens? A lot of times there's nowhere to go. And so I hope to be able to write a bill that will provide um, shelter for any survivor of domestic violence for a period of no less than one year at no cost to them, um, completely funded, regardless of gender identity, socioeconomic status, or um, race. Beverly, um, the full-time work that you do, does it involve writing? It doesn't, thank goodness. So <laughs> I, actually, I actually work in the compensation field, so it only involves Excel spreadsheets and math. Those are two things I'm good at. So I feel like I have a really good balance in my life. Like there's the writing piece of it, and then there's like the Excel data math piece of it. And so I just kind of have like this really perfect combination of like things happening right now where I can exercise all those muscles. So, yeah, I work in compensation. So well, by good. day I'm doing a whole bunch of math. Well, good, <laughs> good for you. And Thank I, you. You know, I always... Uh, I want to first thank you for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning and sharing your experiences and sharing your experiences in your book, of course. And uh, once again, the book is uh, called Surviving, Why We Stay Mm -hmm. and How We Leave Abusive Relationships. But Beverly, um, or by Beverly Gooden, um, Beverly, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, Do you have a website? Thank you, Tom. Yes, my website is beverlygooden.com. My last name is spelled G-O-O-D-E-N.com. I'm on all socials. I don't use all socials, but I'm there somehow at um, Bev T as in Tom Gooden. So that's where I can be found. Well, Beverly, thanks so much and keep up the good work. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. And thank you for your willingness to talk about domestic violence. I know it's a tricky topic and just thank you for approaching it with such grace. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) Take care. (laughs) You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, uh, Beverly Gooden, she is a writer and the creator of the viral social media movement Hashtag why I stayed. She has a master's degree in social justice from Loyola or Loyola easy for me to say Loyola University, Chicago, where she wrote her thesis on institutional responses to single women experiencing intimate partner violence. And her book is called Surviving Why We Stay and How We Leave Abusive Relationships by Barbara Gooden. Or Beverly Gooden. Well, I'm just klutzing out today. Um, <clears throat> anyway, with that, probably just probably a good thing. We're going to go to break and uh, let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. The Tom Sumner program will be right back. Hey, <laughs> this is the unknown comic. 
And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 15th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community Schools. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan, Quiplet Technology, Mark Community College, Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work, and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital. Go to a local symphony concert, Visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom It's Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company. And then ask for the gift card number over the phone. 
Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. Be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov AG for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. gentlemen, Donna Michi and Francis Langford in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickersons. Every morning is the same. Rush, rush, rush. Get up at seven, make breakfast for you, then clear the things away, straighten the house, make the beds, do the shopping, do the laundry... Why can't I have a maid, John? John! Hmm? Well, why don't you answer me, John? Hmm. You take your head out of that paper for a minute, you hear what I'm saying. Always hear what you're saying, Blanche. You do not. I might as well be talking to a stone wall. Your mind is always a million miles away. Hmm. John? Hmm? I've been signed to go 15 rounds with Floyd Patterson at the Madison Square Garden. Yesterday, the plumber found a Russian spy under the bathroom sink. Mm-hmm. I put a nice big gob of poison in your juice this morning. Mm. Give me $7 to buy a new hat. You don't need a new hat. It's a funny thing. The minute I mention money, you hear me fine. I always hear you, Blanche. What did you say? I said, why can't I have a maid? You had a maid. Yes, but how long was she with us? She was never with us. She was against us from the start. I didn't like her anyway. She never swept behind the door. She did, too. She swept everything behind the door. She was like a pigsty. Now, don't slow me down, Blanche. i got to get out of here. Well, what about your breakfast? What about it? It's sitting right in front of you, and you never even looked at it. I looked at it. I don't want to eat it. What's the matter with it? I never saw such stringy oatmeal in my life. That's not oatmeal. It's chow mein. <laughs> Who eats chow mein for breakfast? Well, I don't know what to give you. You won't eat normal breakfast food. You turn up your nose at stewed rabbit. You say you can't stand the sight of enchiladas. And you hate meatballs and spaghetti. What can I give you for breakfast? What's the matter with an egg, Blanche? An egg, that's all. Why can't I have an egg? There's plenty of ducks walking around. <laughs> You're the only man in town who eats duck eggs. I don't know where to buy them. Don't buy them. I don't like to eat breakfast. I never have an appetite in the morning anyway. Where's my hat? In the icebox. Where's my lunch? In your hat. Very funny. 
have sworn I put him out last night. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. Maybe crawling up the drain pipe. Anyway, he ate all my lunch. Then you better sit down and finish the show me. Lunch, I tell you, I don't want that stuff. Well, what'll I do with it? Give it to the cat. You hate that cat, don't you? <laughs> I don't hate anybody. That's the mail. Get it, will you, Blaine? I have to do everything around here. Eat your chow mein. Chow mein for breakfast. Come here, cat. Here. Here's a nice dish of food for you. Here. Go ahead, eat it. Don't let any get on the floor. Eat it. Go on, eat it. Don't bury it in your sandwich. Uh, any mail, Blanche? Bills, bills, bills. What's this package from Kentucky, John? Why, it's a pint of bourbon. Give me that. That's my dividend. I belong to the Bottle of the Month Club. You and that bourbon. No wonder we never have any money. What are you going to do with it, John? I'm going to hide it in a safe place. I wish you'd put a light in this bathroom. It isn't lovely, and I won't wear it. Hasn't even got a shirt tail. You don't need a shirt tail. Just wear your pants higher. I can't wear them any higher. I wear my pants so high now I have to unzip them to blow my nose. Well, I'll buy you a new shirt today. You can wear it at the wedding. What wedding? And here's the invitation. My cousin Eunice is getting married. Eunice? Uncle Raffy's daughter. Uncle Raffy? Is that the one with no forehead who walks on his knuckles? He does not walk on his knuckles. He just has very long arms. He used to be a taffy puller. I'm not going to any broken-down wedding of your cheap relatives. Uncle Raffy's not cheap. He's a very wealthy man now, and he's invited all the guests to go on a cruise after the ceremony. A cruise? What do we get them for a present, John? Forget the present and forget the wedding. I'm not going boat or no boat. <laughs> I gotta get to the office. Now, wait a minute. What's your rush this morning? You're not that vital, you know. I know it, but I don't want him to find out down at the office. The job isn't so easy to come by these days. Well, we should find something more dignified anyway. What do you mean, dignified? I'm getting paid. That's all I care about. Well, I don't like to go around telling people I'm married to a billiard ball salesman. Bowling balls. All right, bowling balls. I still think you could do better if you looked around. Goodbye, Blanche. John! What's the matter? That's a fine way to leave. Haven't you forgotten something? Handkerchiefs, cigarettes, water pipes, samples. No, I've got everything. I mean, is that the way a man says goodbye to his wife? Just goodbye? Oh, honey, I can't shake hands with you now. I got my fingers stuck in these bowling balls. Ah, oh, goodbye. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Every state has something its Rotary Club can boast of. 
Some product that the state produces the most of. Rhode Island is a little but, oh my, it has a product anyone would buy. Copper comes from Arizona. Beaches come from Georgia, and lobsters come from Maine. The wheat fields are the sweet fields of Nebraska, and Kansas gets bonanzas from the grain. Old whiskey comes from old Kentucky. Ain't the country lucky? New Jersey gives us glue. And you, you come from Rhode Island. And little old Rhode Island is famous for you. Cotton comes from Louisiana. Gophers from Montana and spuds from Idaho. They plow land in the cowland of Missouri, where most beef meant for roast beef seems to grow. Grand Canyons come from Colorado. Gold comes from Nevada. Divorces also do. And you, you come from Rhode Island. And little old Rhode Island is famous for you. Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all my guests, uh, starting with this last hour with Beverly Gooden. Uh, writer and uh, creator of the virtual social media movement hashtag why I stayed author of a new book called surviving why we stay and how we leave abusive relationships before that we uh, talked to um, novelist uh, uh, Ebony Liddell about her book love radio and we started out this morning with political operative Joe Rothstein His new uh, political thriller, The Moment of Menace, is the first in uh, what promises to be a three-part series. And uh, that wraps it up for uh, today. That's Smoking George Winters, Tickling the Ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room, but I'll be back tomorrow with uh, one of the GOP candidates for governor and armchair politics. I hope you will be, too. In the meantime, good night, everybody. Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.